Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hope Church, Toronto West. It is our prayer that through these audio sermons, you are challenged and transformed by the Word of God, built up in love and faith, and drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you that these online resources are never meant to be a substitute for God's good plan for you to be present, connected, and serving in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you live in the West Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we encourage you to come check out one of our Sunday services. Now as you prepare your heart to receive God's word, we pray that His Spirit would use this sermon powerfully in your life. Good morning, Hope Church Toronto West. Happy Mother's Day. Um, I hope you've been enjoying our uh, series in the Proverbs. If you've been really enjoying it, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Today we're going to take a little bit of a detour. Uh, that ignoble distinction. Have you ever heard the saying, um, slow down to go faster? Slow down uh, to go faster. It, it's kind of an inter, uh, counterintuitive saying. Slow down to go fast. Intuitively, you'd think, well, to go fast, you've got to speed up. Speed up to go fast. Put, your, put the pedal to the gas to go fast. Well, it turns out that the saying, uh, tur- uh, the saying to slow down to go faster comes from the world of car racing. It's about how you turn quickly. It turns out that when you approach a turn, you've got to slow down right before the apex of the turn. And right when you hit that apex, then you've got to step on the gas and push it. And you come out of that turn accelerating and full of speed. You see, you, you can't just floor the gas uh, the whole way. I know for those of you who grew up playing Mario Kart, that's what you're doing. Um, but it's counterintuitive. You can't just speed up to go fast. You want to be fast, you have to slow down. A slow down to go fast. It's counterintuitive, but it's wise. What if the secret to life is just like that? It's counterintuitive, but wise. Uh, what if the way to the most satisfied life isn't through self-fulfillment, but through self-denial? What if the most secure self-worth is not through self-esteem, but a sober estimation of yourself? And what if abiding joy comes not through the avoidance of pain, but it comes as the result of pain. That would be counterintuitive, like slowing down to go fast. Today, our big idea is counterintuitive, and it's this, that there is true life to be manifested, but only when we say, I choose death in Christ Jesus. And there is true identity to be had, but only when we say, I'm not special or powerful, I'm just a jar of clay. It flies in the face, by the way, of what the world says. It's counterintuitive. It's in stark contrast because the world says, do you want a great life? Well, then choose your best life. Manifest it into existence, they say. And certainly don't let other people get in your way. Don't let society make claims on you. The world says, do you want great self-worth and identity? It says, well, tell yourself that you're special and you're powerful. You are, the world says. But our big idea from our text today is that God's truth is it's unexpected, it's surprising, and perhaps to some of us, even repulsive. There's a true identity to be had, but only when we say, I'm not special or powerful, I'm just a jar of clay. And there's true life to be had, but only when we say, I choose death in Jesus Christ. 
In short, the offer to us is lowly and dying. Lowly and dying. Want in? That's the title of our text, uh, of our message today. Today we're going to be looking at a passage in 2 Corinthians, and I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 to 12 right now. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, simply raise up your hand, and one of our ushers will be glad to give you a Bible. If you don't own one, you can go and keep that. As you're turning there, let me give you some background. Uh, 2 Corinthians is probably the third letter written by Paul to the church in Corinth. And unlike any other epistle, 2 Corinthians tells us about the realities of life and ministry through contrasting images. Contrasting images. He, he gives this counterintuitive paradox that makes us stop and ponder. And the whole book is full of these counterintuitive paradoxes. So let's just jump right into the first part of our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, and we're going to read to verse 9. Verse 7 reads, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. In these first verses, we see our very first point, the first counterintuitive truth. Here's our first point. Living God's truth says, I'm, a low, I'm just a lowly jar of clay. That's how we discover surpassing power. Living God's truth says, I'm just a lowly jar of clay. That's how I discover surpassing power. See, this verse starts with, but we have this treasure. Do you see those words? What is the treasure? Now, if you've read this text before or heard this preached on before, you might quickly and rightfully answer, the treasure is the gospel. That's what the treasure is. The treasure is the message of salvation. The treasure is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Basic stuff. Next. But that's not all that Paul has in mind. In his mind, it's not just basic stuff next, it's glorious stuff. You see, if you look down at 2 Corinthians 3, he just spent that whole chapter telling us what this treasure is. In short, he, this is what Paul's basically saying in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, remember the story of the Exodus, where God dramatically saved his people from slavery in Egypt crossed the Red Sea, led them to Mount Sinai, and his glory rested upon the mountain with fire. And then God met Moses on Mount Sinai, and God himself wrote the Ten Commandments into tablets with his very finger. And simply because God, Moses was talking to God, uh, his face started to shine with the reflected glory of God. It was so shiny that when he came down the mountain, they had to put a veil over his face. That's how bright his face was. So bright, so blinding. And he says this, the glory of the gospel is a million times brighter than that. Because in the gospel, you don't just gaze at Moses' face, you gaze at the unveiled face of God. It's so much better, it's so much more glorious, it's so much more majestic. It's so much brighter in glory that it makes the glory of Mount Sinai look dim. And so when Paul summarizes what happens when the Holy Spirit plants the glorious gospel in our hearts, what happens when he turns on the lights in our hearts, this is what he says in verse 6. Take a look down one verse before our text. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's a mouthful. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's not basic stuff. It's glorious stuff. When the Holy Spirit illuminated our hearts upon salvation, we got something so glorious, it's shinier than the face of Moses. You get the very face of God, of Jesus Christ. It's more glorious than Moses' law written on our hearts. This, we get it written on, our, uh, written on stones. That's what Moses' law was, written on stones. But the Holy Spirit writes his law on our hearts. That's what he deposits into our hearts. That's the blinding light that shines into our hearts. That's the treasure over and over, if you read the Second Corinthians 3, it gets at the glory of the treasure that we have. It's dazzling. It's bright. It's a sparkling diamond. It's almost blinding in radiance. It's so bright that it makes the choicest of diamonds look dim. Imagine that scene, that we, uh, the, a typical movie scene where a box is open and light shines up on the face. That's the image that Paul is giving us. So much glory, it's so bright, brighter than you've ever seen. Blinding in brightness. And it's this point that we get the first counterintuitive surprise. Because he says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Jars of clay. I remember when I first got my engagement ring, uh, I was almost impressed, I was almost as impressed with the box that the ring came in uh, as the ring itself. See, it was a beautiful, shiny box. This perfect, you know, little white cushion that would perfectly hug the ring. Perfect for when you pop the question, you pop the top of that, uh, of the box. It's, it, I just remember thinking, the, the box really has to match the ring. And then I had this humorous, weird mental picture of, I wonder how my proposal would have been if I took that ring and put it in one of those small little Tupperwares. You know, it, it's not going to come out. It's like airtight. And I get on one knee. And little pop that little corner and be like, honey, will you marry me? It kind of kill it, wouldn't it? It would kill the mood. It's a humorous, a paradoxical image. But that's the sort of image Paul is trying to give us. We, we have this sparkling treasure. The, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That sparkling, that dazzling, this treasure. And he chooses to store them in jars of clay. Now, ancient jars of clay... I don't know a lot about them. But they were known to be weak and fragile. They were a common biblical metaphor for fragile human bodies. Uh, the treasure of the gospel is stored not in a fancy box, but in a fragile jar of clay, our bodies. Uh, but that's not all. Because jars of clay, they're not just fragile, they're also insignificant. They're disposable. Uh, it's curious that when you look at this text, it doesn't say, but well, we have this treasure in Ming vases. Or we have this treasure in Fabergé eggs. Uh, we don't, those things are fragile, but they're also valuable and exceptional. Uh, jars of clay are neither. They're not only fragile, they're also unexceptional. They are insignificant. They're not spectacular. Jars of clay just aren't very special. I'm a jar of clay. I'm not very special. Get that bumper sticker printed. Dane Ortland, he describes it and he says, this astonishing ministry of eternal magnitude through which God opens the eyes of sinners blinded by the devil begins a new creation, resides in fragile 
pot. Not beautiful, ornate golden vessels, just clay jars crumbling over time, liable to be smashed to total destruction at any time, unattractive, unimpressive. See, the treasure is glorious and shiny, but the jar isn't glorious. The treasure is special, but the jar isn't special. Living God's truth says, I'm a lowly jar of clay, yet I hold the most special of treasures. The gospel in me is special, but I'm really not that special. When you think about it, that, that, that flies in the face of what we're supposed to tell children growing up. The world says, tell, tell yourself that you're special. But here, we get a new identity. You're, we're just jars of clay. I'm not that special. And don't get me wrong here. I know we're made in the image of God. We're, that means we have worth, we have dignity, we have value. But that doesn't mean we have a special glory to us. A dazzling brightness that should make people stop and behold us. The treasure is glorious, but we're not. The treasure is to be beheld, but we aren't. And it may seem like a strange little thing. But, and you may ask, well, why does God make this so? Well, verse 7 tells us that he has a purpose to it. Look at verse 7. It says, to show. God has a divine purpose for this setup. He puts treasure in fragile pots, fragile jars to show something. Look at verse 7 again. It says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He says, God's put this whole setup together with purpose. Uh, he wants to show that something belongs to him and that it doesn't belong to us. He wants to show that the surpassing power belongs to him and not to us. He wants to show that the surpassing might belongs to him and not to us. His surpassing ability belongs to him and not to us. The surpassing strength belongs to him and not to us. It's a paradigm shift. And here's the paradigm shift I want to bring to us. There's a paradigm shift that the verse gives. When we think of ourselves as mighty special, we're stealing what doesn't belong to us. We're stealing something that's only due to him. We're stealing his glory. When we say, I've got the surpassing power, we're stealing credit from God. But jar, clay, clay jars, they, they confidently say the surpassing power doesn't belong to us. The power for heart change, nope, that doesn't belong to us. The power to change my own heart, it didn't belong to me, it belonged to God. It was his ability, his strength, and his might that saved me, not my own. I'm just a jar of clay. It's the dazzling treasure that does the work, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Now, all of that may sound a little bit abstract, but I just want to, so let me try to apply it. There may be two different hearts in the room who just need to hear this truth. Two hearts. The first heart is the prideful heart. The heart that says, I did that, not God. That heart points to his successes and says, I did that. It was my entrepreneurial skill that did that, not the grace of God. That heart points to money made and says, I did that. It was my financial savvy that did that, not the grace of God. That heart can even be in the heart of a pastor or ministry leader who points to ministry successes and says, I did that. It was my eloquence that led them to Jesus Christ. It was my strength that caused this church to grow. I did that. But this verse stands in our face and says, no, God did that. Stop stealing his glory. The power, the strength, and ability belongs to him and not to you. You're just the recipient of his grace. Remember, you're not a flashy vessel. You're a jar of clay. The prideful heart. I did that, not God. You've got to hear this verse. But there's another heart that's here. 
It's the unbelieving heart. It's the heart that says, God can't do anything with me. That heart looks in the mirror and says, I'm too ordinary and unexceptional. God couldn't do anything with that. That, that heart points at his, his or her failures and says, I'm too much of a screw-up. God couldn't do anything with that. And this verse says the exact same thing to that heart. No, God can do anything with anyone. Stop stealing his glory. The power, the strength, and ability belongs to him and not to you. Stop believing the lie that, he, that the power is supposed to belong to you. You're a recipient of his glorious grace. You're not a flashy vessel. You're a jar of clay. Interestingly, behind both these hearts is the same longing. The prideful heart says, I'm more than a jar. Look at me. But the unbelieving heart says, I think I'm more than a jar. Would someone please look at me? But the true free life says, I'm just a jar of clay. Look at Christ. I am convinced more and more in my life that our hearts have a greater need to behold than to be seen. I'm going to say that again. Our hearts have a greater need to behold than to be seen. Being seen is our culture's preoccupation. I need to be seen. Look at me. I feel like I'm not seen. But perhaps our greatest need is to behold. 2 Corinthians 3.18, just one chapter before, says this, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We weren't created to sparkle and shine. We were designed to house and to behold the treasure that sparkles and shines. And on our own, we don't sparkle and shine. Uh, people don't stop us and say, wow, look how dazzling and amazingly attractive Andrew looks. We're not the diamond in the store that immediately gets admiration and draws attention. That's the point. We're ordinary jars of clay. We're the cardboard Amazon box that the real thing is in. We aren't the treasure. And, and look, Paul's life is case in point. Take a look at verse 8. Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Uh, we see in these verses the very characteristics of living the life of a clay jar. It's clay jar living. See, Paul isn't treasured. He's afflicted. He's not getting flowers thrown at his feet. He's perplexed. He's not being pursued for an autograph. He's being pursued and hunted and persecuted. He's not being put on a pedestal. He is struck down. Earlier in 2 Corinthians 2, it says he walks around, and to some he's the fragrance of life, but to others he's the stink of death. Look at Paul's life. He's not treasured. He's not immediately gazed upon and recognized as the one carrying treasure even. This is the life of the undistinguished lowly jar. But thankfully, that's not the whole story. Dane Orland in the ESV expository commentary points out that in this verse we have two halves. He says, one could say that the first half of each pair reflects life as a jar of clay, but the second reflects the presence of treasure. And you see this contrast in the verses. In the face of increasing suffering, afflicted and then perplexed and then persecuted and then finally struck down, he is mercifully, mercifully pres preserved. 
from four great enemies. Do you see that? He's preserved from four great enemies. First, he's preserved from compression. He's not crushed. Then he's preserved from despair. It says he's not driven to despair. And then he's preserved from loneliness. He's not forsaken. And then he's finally not, he's preserved from death, not destroyed. Compression, despair, loneliness, and death. Do you resonate with those? Compression says I'm completely trapped. I can't find a way out. Do you resonate with that in your life? Despair says there's absolutely no hope. I can't look up. Do you resonate with that? Loneliness says no one understands, no one cares, no one is here for me. Do you resonate with that? And death says, death is inevitable, it's, it's coming. Just lie down and take it. Do you identify with any of those? Are those your great fears? Do those great enemies see, uh, siege your life? Paul was delivered from all of these by God's surpassing power. Now look, at this point, we can look at Paul's life and think, wow, that is all quite inspiring. Uh, his resilience is so inspiring. This is like reading a book of one of the great heroes. Uh, man, he must be made of something else. But that's the opposite of Paul's point. Because Paul, Paul's point here is this. This treasure-carrying, yet lowly clay jar life is resilient because of God and not Paul. And it's displaying to all who look at Paul's life, ourselves included, that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to him. It's e if I'm honest, I've read this verse before and thought, wow, that's really, in really inspirational. Like, look at it. I've seen it on a, on a plaque on the wall before. Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And in my hardest times, I've thought, yeah, I want that. But how do you get that? How does that happen? It seems so far out of grasp. How does that actually work? How, does, how do you get from, okay, lowly jar of clay to afflicted, not crushed, struck down, not destroyed? How does his surpassing power get worked in? Well, I think one clue that we have is to look at the words surpassing power. Look at the word surpassing. Uh, the word surpassing means to go beyond, something that goes beyond. It's a power that God gives to go beyond. It's a going beyond power. It's surpassing. And strangely enough, the word surpassing is one of Paul's favorite words in 2 Corinthians. He mentions it again and again, perhaps more than any other epistle. Uh, just, I want to bring you the two texts where he talks about things that are surpassing, and they're sandwich texts for our text. The first is found in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 9 to 10. You can look at that in your Bible. It should be on the screen as well. It says, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Surpassing glory. He's saying there was a glory that came with the old covenant, with what happened with Moses. But we have a glory today that surpasses it. We have a glory today that goes beyond anything in the past. You see that? We have a glory today that goes beyond anything in the past. There's another text in 2 Corinthians 4 after our text. It's 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. It says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You may look at that text and say, where is the word surpassing? 
The English translation doesn't have it, have it, but it's the same word. So that phrase, beyond all comparison, is that word surpassing. The, the verse literally says, we have a weight of glory that is surpassing. In other words, He's looking ahead to the glory that will come. And he says, we have a glory tomorrow that goes beyond anything in the present. In the first text, he says, we have a glory today that goes beyond anything in the past. And in the later text, he says, we have a glory tomorrow that goes beyond anything in the present. We have two texts about surpassing glory, glory that goes beyond. And they sandwich our text, which talks about surpassing power, the power that goes beyond. And if we look at all these texts together, we get the key that unlocks, unlocks it all. Here's the key. Look beyond to the glory that goes beyond. And then you encounter God's power that goes beyond. Look beyond to the glory that goes beyond. And then you encounter God's power that goes beyond. Living God's truth says, I'm just a lowly jar. That's how I discover surpassing power. Now at this point, Paul changes things up. He introduces his second and final motif, his second theme. He, see, he's done with the visual of treasures of jars and clay, and he wants to bring in the visual of life and death. That brings us to our second point. Living God's truth says, I willingly carry Jesus' death in me. That's how glorious life is manifested. I willingly carry Jesus' death in me. That's how glorious life is manifested. Look at verse 10. He says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. When you read this text, it feels like Paul's getting a little philosophical here. And it's because he is, really. And what he's doing is he's summarizing the verses that came before. Uh, once again, a note from the Expositor's Bible Commentary says, In effect, verse 10 summarizes the four preceding contrasts in the paradox. Always dying, yet never lifeless. In the phrase, the death, or dying of Jesus, Paul sums up the experience of being hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down during the course of his service for him. Here's what Paul is doing in verse 10. In verse 10, he is naming the phenomenon. He's saying, do you know what that is? To be afflicted, to be perplexed, to be persecuted, to be struck down. Do you know what, that, do you know what the term is for that? A single catch-all shorthand term for that? It's called death-carrying. That's what's going on, in my, going on in my life, Paul says. I am carrying the death of Jesus in me. Death carrying. The life as the jar of clay is the life as a death carrier. Carrying death. Carrying death. Um, early in our marriage, I learned uh, that my wife, Joyce, owns certain pants that have no pockets. Apparently, that's a thing with women's clothing. Didn't know that until marriage. I'm going to say this, I would not be able to live life without pockets. I've got stuff to carry. Phone wallet keys. Wherever I go, phone wallet keys. Just got to be able to carry them on my body. When I'm out and about, I, but those three things are on me at all times. Always carrying on me. Phone, wallet, keys. I do that. It's, it's, it's so instinctive that when I leave a restaurant, for example, I do this little po pocket check. Phone, wallet, keys. Okay, all good. I can leave now. Because... When I go around, the thing that I carry is those things. Great, good to go, pocket check, I can go now. This verse says that there is one more thing to add to your pockets. A fourth thing in the pocket check, death. Carrying death. 
There's one more thing to add to your pocket check wherever you go when you leave your house. You know what you're supposed to carry? Death. That's what Paul was carrying. His pockets were full. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 to 28. Uh, it, it gives, he goes into specifics of how he carried death. He said, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure of me on me for, of my anxiety for all the churches. That's a lot of death carrying. His pockets were full. He was carrying death. But this death wasn't alone. It also caused life to be manifested in Paul's earthly life. One commentator's note says, it was not a matter of life after death or even life through death, but of life in the midst of death. Paul's repeated deliverances from death evidenced the resurrecting power of God. Just as his refusal to despair in the face of danger of, of death and persistent opposition displayed the resurrection life of Jesus operative in his mortal body. Now at this point, we can retort and we can stop and say, well, isn't that mainly a Paul thing? Like, that's just Paul's life, right? Like, maybe he's supposed to carry death in him. Maybe his pockets are full of death. But not us, right? I mean, it seems pretty on brand for Paul. But not very on brand for me. Paul says in Galatians 6, he was persecuted for the cross of Christ, and he bears the body, bears on his body the marks of Jesus Christ. But I look at that, and I'm like, I ain't got no scars. Is this a Paul thing only? I mean, we, we may think, hey, good for you, Paul. That's really inspirational, but what a rare breed. What a rare breed to carry the life and death, the, the life of death-carrying and life-manifesting. Now, it's true. Not all Christians are called to the same literal sufferings as Paul. Uh, the beatings, the shipwrecks, the, the being imprisoned. But it's amazing that in this text, Paul doesn't let us off the hook because he goes on to verse 11. And in verse 11, Paul's basically saying, I'm talking to you too. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 and 12 says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. That verse starts with, for we who live. He's stopping, Paul is stopping, and he's giving a reflection on all of Christian life. It's not just his unique missionary life, but he's giving a comment to all who live as Christians. Are you alive? Are you part of the all who live? Then this verse is for you. This is a truth that is for you. See, verse 11 is a truth statement. It grounds the whole phenomenon of carrying death as a jar of clay. It's not a Paul-only phenomenon. It's an all-Christian reality. Those alive in Jesus Christ are those who are always or unceasingly being given over to death for Jesus' sake. But it's not purposeless. The purpose is that the resurrection life of Jesus may be manifested, not only after we die, but today in our mortal flesh. And when you think about it, when you let it sink in, it is a groundbreaking statement. It's counterintuitive. It is shocking. And even if you accept it, 
it's still kind of a head-scratcher. I, re- I fully recognize that as we're going through this text, you may be sitting there being like, what is Paul talking about? Believe me, I get it. Because that, that was my whole week. I'm like, I, I, I feel the impact, jars of clay with, uh, w- with, with treasure in it, but, and then carrying death, but that life comes, that's all kind of poetic and philosophical. And, and it's hard, but what is, I can't, it's, a, it's a hard thing to grasp. This was helpful for me. If we ask, what does this actually look like for me in my life? I see how it looks like in Paul's. He's shipwrecked, he's imprisoned. That guy's carrying death, man. Like, that looks like real death. How about for me, what does it look like to carry death in my everyday middle-class life? Daniel Ortland is helpful here. He says, the idea is that wherever believers go, they bring with them the cruciform nature of Jesus' earthly existence. The cruciform nature of Jesus' earthly existence. The giving over of themselves to heavenly priorities, hastening their eventual physical demise. The cruciform nature of Jesus' earthly existence. That's just a big fancy way of saying, you know what cruciform means? It means cross-shaped. It means that our life is cross-shaped just like Jesus' was. Uh, that may still be a little bit abstract. What was Jesus' cross-shaped earthly existence like? Well, let's take a look at a familiar text. But think of it through his cross-shaped life. Isaiah 53 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Here's the truth for the Christian. When we read that text, we don't just read it and say, wow, Jesus was amazing. Jesus was this one who had no form and majesty and was despised and rejected. I can't believe he would do that for me. That is all true. But in this verse, when we hear that the life, the death of Jesus, is the thing we carry in us. It's the thing that we're given over to. The truth is this, wherever you go, that's what you carry to. Christ's death. Being despised instead of treasured. Being afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. Losing friends. Getting fired. Getting laughed at. Getting hated. Excluded and reviled, Luke 6. Getting rejected. Getting misunderstood. Getting vilified. Carrying death. You know what it says in 2 Timothy? It says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Want in? Now, in order to do this, there's something big that's going to have to happen in your life first. You're going to have to abandon your love for the treasures of this world. I love Diedrich Bonhoeffer's words here. And it's just so striking to the heart. He says this, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It's that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give ourselves, we give our lives to death. Can you just let that sink in? The call of the Christian life is the call to death. Bonhoeffer in the same quote says this, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It's not a very inspirational sermon, is it? 
and it's not very intuitive. And you may be sitting there thinking, A, this is kind of boggling, this is still a little bit abstract, I'm still chewing on it, but one thing I'm hearing is, this isn't a flowery life that I get. And if that's what you're thinking, you're right. And you may spend the years, you may spend your entire life chewing on, what is this like? God, I believe this. I believe that, okay, you've given me over to death, that there is going to be some suffering. It's a form of death. It may not be like Paul's where he's shipwrecked and in prison, but there is going to be some pain. That you may have come to faith in Jesus Christ and someone told you, put your faith in Jesus Christ and life will be easy. If that's what you were told, that's wrong. Life will be hard. It's going to be painful. But it's also going to be a privilege. Because here's the counterintuitive bit. When death lives in you, you also get life. See, living God's truth says, I willingly carry Christ's death in me. But there's a second half to that. That's how glorious life is manifested. Carrying death in our bodies is not pointless or fruitless. It bears the fruit of Jesus' life manifested in our bodies today. And you may still be thinking, what does that look like? What is it like for, life, for the life of Jesus to be manifested in my body? And if I'm honest, I don't know if I would be able to answer that question five years ago. I at least wouldn't be able to answer that question from first-hand experience. I'd probably be able to quote great sufferers in the past, Spurgeon, John Patton. But for myself, it was something that would have been foreign to me. And at this point in my life, I think I only have a partial answer. I think God's still teaching me. But last night I got a chance to take a look at my journal. I was flipping through pages filled with moments of pain and affliction over the last few years. And I looked and, and said, yep, well, that's carrying death for Jesus' sake. I see that all over the pages. But I also started to find life recorded in those pages. Life that God was manifesting in me. Because through the pain, I encountered the refuge of a God I could lament to with my pain, Psalm 5. I encountered the ear of a God who hears my cries amidst unfair accusations, Psalm 28. I encountered the true life of loving those that are hard to love, 1 Corinthians 1. And as my circumstances got bleaker, I encountered a God who lets us to be, be, to be shipwrecked, to run aground, to run ashore, yet all in his sovereign love, Acts 27. I encountered a God who is my close command, uh, companion when it feels that those around me are snarling at me, Psalm 59. I encountered a God who invites us to bring our feeble two fish and five loaves to him, Matthew 14. I encountered a God who takes our feeble unbelief and we say, I believe, help my unbelief, and he helps. I encountered a God who reminded me that my sin is far deeper than even my critics' harshest estimation, but it caused me to cherish the cross of Jesus Christ, the old rugged cross, and cherish his blood shed for me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I encountered a God who spoke to me in the darkest soul of the night, and where he says in Romans 12, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. I encountered a God who counts my tossings and, keep, and keeps my tears in his bottle and his book, Psalm 56. And strangely enough, as death increased, he began to produce the life-giving fruit of the Spirit. More love, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, and more self-control. And if I'm honest, he started to produce it painfully and more than I wanted. 
Because my flesh would prefer retaliation to kindness. My flesh would prefer venting my frustrations rather than self-control. My flesh would prefer I'm done with it rather than patient endurance. But God puts our flesh to death and real life gets manifested. It's hard and painful when he prunes you to become more faithful. But that is the life that Jesus manifests. That's life through death. Resurrection life can happen through death. By the way, that's way better than the world's version of manifesting life. The world tells us to visualize and embrace the thing that is most fulfilling, most happy, most painless, and manifest it into being. But our text today says the opposite. It says visualize the death of Jesus in you. Embrace that and you will find in the middle of your pain and death the life of Jesus manifested in you. True life marked with scars, marked with tears. But that's the resurrection body of Jesus. That's the resurrection life of Jesus, isn't it? A resurrected Jesus with scars in his hand and his side, yet in a more beautiful state than before. And when resurrection life begins to manifest in you, you start to give life to others. Verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. You'll be the type of life-giving person that you never would have dreamed of. Living God's truth says, I'm just a lowly jar of clay, but that's how I discover surpassing power. And it says, I willingly carry Jesus' death in me. And that's how glorious life is manifested. Better than what the world gives. Better than what I want. More painful than what I want, but better than what I want. He turns you into a person who's better than you, than you even think or, or imagine. He produces more fruit in you than you, could, than you could ask for. And it's painful, but it's good. Lowly and dying. That is the promise of life that your God offers to you. Here's the question. Do you want it? Let's pray. For more resources and information about Hope Church Toronto West, please visit hopechurchtw.ca.